Good morning. So, uh, students, we missed you guys last week. Did you all have a good fun in the sun? Who, who gave the owl? Okay. I didn't really know why I asked, but uh, I'm glad we did miss you guys. We were praying for you as you went and excited to hear, excited to hear about it. Uh, we're continuing in our teaching series this summer where we're making our way through the book of James. And before we get to the lesson for today, the scripture passage for today, I want to remind us of what we talked about last week. Because, see, James wrote this letter, uh, and he didn't write it with the verses and chapters like what we have in there, right? We use that to refer to certain passages. It's easier to find things. Uh, it's easy when you're making up a sermon series to take up the summer, to divide it up uh, in certain ways because you got this many weeks before things happen. Um, but I think James would be disturbed at some level that we're dividing his, le- his letter up into these like bite-sized chunks and looking at them individually, right? Like if you wrote a long letter to somebody and then you heard that people, you know, one week just got this like one paragraph, you'd be like, well, that's kind of weird. You're just taking a paragraph out because it, you know, had stuff before it and stuff afterwards that sort of built a context around it. Um, I think he would be especially disturbed by the uh, breaking up of the passage from last week and this week. And I'm not throwing anyone under the bus when I say that. I'm the one that made these divisions. I divided it up this way because we have a certain number of Sundays. But I think he would sit there and go, that, that was silly of you to divide it up that way. Because our scripture passage today will not make sense if you don't understand what we talked about last Sunday and how he ended chapter three, okay? So I'm gonna give you a, a quick recap so that we're all on the same page. Essentially what he said at the end of chapter three last week is that there are two kinds of wisdom that all of us have. All of us have two kinds of wisdom that are a part of our nature. They're kind of a part of our DNA and they influence us and they motivate us to do certain things that we do, okay? No matter who we are, no matter our background, no matter what country we're from, no matter our culture, no matter our gender, no matter how much money we make, no matter where we go to school, All of us have these in common. All of us as human beings have these things that are kind of operating within us that we need to be able to identify, okay? The first kind of wisdom that he talked about was what he described as earthly wisdom. Earthly wisdom that he said is motivated by ambition and envy. And we all have that. We all have that in our hearts, those places where we are motivated by ambition and envy, and it creates a world where we're kind of the center of everything, right? It's about my goals, it's about my dreams, it's about my identity, it's about the school I need to get into, it's about the job I need to have, it's about the idea of how I want to retire, it's about my truth, it's about my way of understanding my values, it's my life to live. I am the final authority on how this works. And what he says is, is that when we live by that wisdom, as appealing as it is in the short run, he says over time, it does not produce the kind of life that you want to live. He says over time, seeing the world where we are the centerpiece of everything creates wickedness, he says, and it creates disorder. So what we invited you to do last week is you you had some note cards we invited you to carry around with you. 
And we ask you to look at places in your life where things were just disorderly, where you were kind of going, this just didn't feel right. It's not, it's not functioning right. It's not flowing right, whether it's in a relationship or in my job, or maybe where there's wickedness in our, in our life, because all of us have that. We are united by the presence of, of, of wickedness and sin and temptation that dominates all of our lives. The question is whether we're honest about that or not. But we all have that. So what we said is, where are those places? And then could the root cause, could we look at like where there's disorder or where there's chaos or where there's conflict? And maybe at the root of that is that there is kind of a self-centered approach that we're taking to life, right? If you've got conflict with somebody, that it could be because you're going, this, this is just what I want. Because this is just how it's going to happen. This is what I want to do. And, and that that could be the kernel that's at the core that erupts into conflict or disorder or wickedness, okay? So that is existing in all of our lives. We all have that in all of our relationships. Now, there's also a second kind of wisdom, he says, and that's what would be more of a divine wisdom. It's embodied perfectly by Jesus, It's not one where we are motivated by our ambition, my goals, my dreams, my agenda, my success, my life, the way I'm going to live it, but it is motivated by a desire to serve, to sacrifice. He says it's motivated by gentleness, and he says that when we do that, when we take ourselves out of the centerpiece of everything and we start to revolve around something larger than ourselves, he says that it produces great things. It produces peace, he says. It produces righteousness. And so what we invited you to do was to say, how could I take these things where maybe I'm saying, hey, it's kind of about me and my life. And what would it mean to say, this is going to be about Jesus. I actually want Jesus to be the center of everything I'm about. I want Jesus to be the center of my marriage. I want him to be the center of my friendships. I want him to be the center of my identity at work. I want him to be the center of how I'm a parent or a child. I want him to be the center of how uh, I am a student in school. I want him to be the center of my goals at work. I want Jesus to be the center of everything that I'm about. And when I don't demand to be the center of attention, when we go through what we call a Copernican revolution, you have to go listen to the sermon. I'm not going to go through that again. But when you go, go through that experience and say, now I am revolving around something, someone who's larger than myself, that's when we come alive. Those two kinds of wisdoms I want you to keep in mind as we look at the scripture passage today. Because if you don't see those, what he's writing about isn't going to make sense. Okay? So the passage today is Luke 4. Uh, Luke 4. That'd be fascinating. James 4. Derek just had like half a second of total freak out back there. (laughs) It's been a long weekend. James 4, verses 1 through 10. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. 
Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would open our minds and our hearts to receive your truth and your message to us today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so in the first part of this passage, James asks a series of questions, and they're kind of rhetorical questions, okay? He asks questions that are meant to be based on those two kinds of wisdom that we talked about at the end of chapter 3. What he's wanting us to do is he's trying to ask us some questions to help us identify the presence of that earthly wisdom that all of us have, that's a part of all of our lives. Okay, so what he says is, is like, where do conflicts come from? Well, conflicts come from where you have two people or two governments or two parties or two uh, 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 businesses that essentially are sitting there going, this is how we see it. This is what's best for us. This is what we want. He says, conflicts erupt out of that earthly sense of wisdom. He says, they come from our cravings. He says, do you know that, that friendship with the world is, is enmity with God? He says, do you know that one of the reasons that things don't happen the way we might even be praying for, he says, is that even our prayers can come out of this earthly kind of thinking, this self-centered way of thinking. It's when we start praying like a child writing a, a, a letter to Santa Claus right? It's like, I need this, and I want this, and this person needs this, and they want this, and, and we, it's just this list of what we need and want. And it may not be bad stuff. We may be praying for healing. We may be praying for our friends, but that our prayers are limited to just these lists of, I want this, and need this, and we want this, and everybody needs this, and so will you deliver? Rather than praying the way with some maturity, the way Jesus says, which is to consider, what is thy will? Where prayer isn't just us listening to God, our request, but where we find ways of listening and hearing. Where we sit there and say, Lord, what do you want in this situation? What is your will? What is thy will in this? Rather than just me giving you a litany of what I want and then saying amen. This is what James is saying. He's saying that this earthly kind of wisdom, these questions are meant to help us see. And one of the things I'm convinced he's trying to point out to us is that if we had this earthly wisdom and everything went the way we wanted, that it would be, it still wouldn't be enough. I think in these questions he's trying to get us to see is, is that if every desire you had came into being, if everything that you listed as wanting uh, just happened, if you had every success that you could imagine, if you got every award that you've ever desired, if you got every promotion at work, if you got all this money, all this success, everything, if that was the scope of your dreams where you are the sinner and these are my goals for my life, you could have everything and it would always leave you wanting more. One of the great tragedies in our world is how many bright, intelligent, wonderful people are slaving away at what my goals are going to be to change this world, to, to, to achieve what I want to achieve. And even if they're good things, if that's the scope of what they're about, achieving those goals, you can gain them and still be left hungry. One of the stereotypes we have to fight as Christians, and it's out there all the time, especially as we're becoming more and more of a minority in culture today, which we are, is that there's sort of this idea of, hey, um, the reason I don't go to church, the reason I'm not interested in this uh, is because uh, church is about like me having to not do all these things I want to do. 
having all these experiences that other people can have, get to do all these things that other people want to do that seem wonderful and fun and exciting. But if I follow enough rules and do enough good things, then somehow when I die, I have a ticket to it being better, right? It's sort of this denial of the here and now in order to someday have something better. And what James wants us to see in these two kinds of wisdom is that is absolutely false. That you could get everything you want, everything that you desire. And if you got it all, you still would be wanting more. It's not that a success, it's not that achievements, it's not that goals are bad. Success is not a bad thing. But success only finds meaning and purpose when it's in the, in the pursuit of a hot, something higher than just the success itself. Does that make sense? Think about it for the church. Think about it for us. One of the things that's been happening here at Covenant, it's happened before, but it certainly happened in the last year, is that we're experiencing some success. We're growing, right? We're in a time when over 90% of churches in this country are in decline, and we're growing. We're growing in terms of membership. We're growing in terms of worship attendance. We're growing in terms of giving. We're kind of growing in all these metrics, and people are noticing. I've had multiple meetings this week with other pastors and other groups like, how are you growing? What's going on? How can we like, learn from what's happening here? And it's not that that's bad, but our goal is not to grow. That is not a goal. I mean, if, if it were, then we would sit here today going, okay, well, we achieved it. You know, in the last year, we've grown. Does anybody feel like what we're supposed to do is done? Does anybody feel like the mission is complete? No. Because if all that was what we wanted to do, we've done it, but it has no purpose. It would leave us empty. The wonderful part about the fact that we're growing is that we're believing that more and more people are hearing about the gospel are hearing about Jesus, are wondering what it is God wants them to do with their life, are, are invited into a story where they're not just pursuing what they want and everything about their life that's success, but they're going, man, I could maybe be a world changer. I could stand for the things of the kingdom. Something eternal might happen because my life is here and has significance in this way. I got to do a wedding last night, a, a, a big wedding in our sanctuary for a young couple that just joined the church, Chrissy Cornelius and Drew Fuller, now Chrissy Fuller and Drew Fuller. And Chrissy uh, was one of the people, they, they both just joined recently. Uh, Chrissy just got baptized a few months ago as a follower of Jesus. And what's exciting in that for me is you've got these young adults, or, and it's not young adults, it's people of any age, but in their case, these young adults who are really starting to ask these questions of, what does God want me to do? And how could this city be different because I'm here? They're asking bigger questions. James is saying that if we just live based on our goals, our agenda, it's all about me. He said, take it, have it all. You will learn in the end, you are lacking something. I think one of the big reasons people come to faith is not just through hard times, but because they get stuff and they achieve what they want to. And then they're like, okay, so is that it? That was a huge part for me and coming to faith, of seeing like all the success around you or that you experience or you do, and then you're like, so is it like just you just keep climbing mountains? Is this it? You achieve one goal and there's just like seven more that appear and we just don't do it again? Like, is, is that life? Is that what it's about? Part of being a Christian is constantly saying no to a small self-centered life. Part of being a Christian is constantly saying, I want something more. I want something bigger. I want to be a part of a bigger story. I want to stand for something eternal. I want to be a part of a movement that is bigger than just me. It is saying no to a small, selfish, self-centered, my goals and agenda life. 
That's what that life is like. <laughs> it's painful when that's all that you're doing, when that's all that you got. So what do we do? If what we're ready to do is say, I'd like to be a part of something bigger, I would like to be a part of a bigger story, how do we do that? Well, that's where the second half of this passage comes into play. Because what James says to us is he gives us some verbs. He gives us some action words. He says, this is what you do. You want to be a part of a bigger story? You want to be a part of something that's bigger than yourself? Then here's what you got to do. You've got to humble yourself. You have to submit to the will of God. These are verbs that we don't like hearing, right? I mean, there's not many people that hear, you know, we get to submit and you're like, yes. I love that word. Submission is my favorite thing in the world. Humility, my favorite trait. You know, it's like that's just not what we're naturally drawn to. They don't make big Hollywood epics about submission, right? That's just not not the values we naturally pursue. But what James is saying is that that's what it takes. It takes more than just saying, well, I want God and I want success and I want to have a career and I want to have, you know, a Volvo station wagon and 2.6 kids and golden retrievers and a white picket fence. It's just not one part of life. It's about saying, Lord, to be a part of this bigger story, I have to submit everything to you. I have to humble myself in every way before you. Not just one time, not as a one-time event, but I have to continuously find in my life the rhythm of saying, Lord, I want to be a part of a bigger story. The word we use in the Christian tradition for that is to repent. That we are called to repent. Now, repentance has about the same kind of excitement to it as submission does, right? Derek was saying in staff meeting this week when we were talking about the scripture, Derek said, you know, if we had a service of repentance, we could advertise it, we could say how great it's going to be, and we'd hold it and tiny little crowd would be there, right? It would not draw people in. Service of repentance, yes, I'm there. That's not how we think about it. But what James is actually saying to us is that repentance is a process we're called into that actually is a really exciting way that we are invited into a bigger story. And it's the only way we get there. It's the only way we can become a part of what God's doing in this world is through repentance. Repentance is not about shame It's not about feeling how small you are. It's not about admitting how broken and just feeling down and and crowded in on yourself. Repentance actually means to turn in a new direction. It's about the moment of change. It's about the moment of saying, Lord, I see where I'm headed that is part of a really small self-centered story that leads to wickedness and it leads to disorder. And repentance is about saying, I choose to move in a new direction. I choose to humble and submit myself to you. I want to be a part of your story. And that process, that moment of decision is what repentance is really about. So we're not going to have a service of repentance today, but we're going to invite you this week. And I want you to listen to this, because this this is one of those sermons and services that isn't going to really end today. We're going to invite you into a week of a discipline of repentance. Okay? We're going to invite you into a week of a discipline of repentance, of choosing to move in a new direction of choosing, as James would say, Lord, these are where I'm following the earthly parts of my life, and I'm choosing to turn and move in a new direction. I humble myself before you. I submit all the parts of my life to you. And it can't just happen one time, and it can't just happen in five minutes here, and then we leave and go to lunch. It's got to become a discipline, a part of our daily, normal life routine. 
One of the best models for a discipline of repentance, how you and I can do that so that we can change and we can be transformed is uh, through different recovery groups, okay? Through groups like Alcoholics Anonymous. One of the things I am most proud about of this church, and there are many things that I am incredibly proud to be associated with this church, is that seven days a week, this building is open for recovery groups that meet here. Sometimes multiple groups that meet a day. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people every day, every week, are coming into this building and experiencing God's transformation and God's grace through a 12-step program. Some of you have probably been through 12-step programs yourself and experienced that transformation. Many of you, and I would be in this boat, have people that we love dearly who have been a part and experienced the transformation from alcoholism, from addiction, that comes through this 12 step, these 12-step programs. It is an honor that we get to host in this place those kinds of ministries. And at their core, in their origin, they were faith-based. And they teach us what it means to be a Christian and to have a discipline of repentance in our life. Because whenever you go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, if you've been to one before, you know that the way each person introduces himself is by the same phrase each time. They introduce themselves, hello, my name is Thomas, and I'm an alcoholic. It's the first thing that they all say in those meetings. They may not have had a drink for 25 years. They may not have had a drink for 50 years. They may have been in recovery for a long time, but the way they start is not, I used to be, and now I don't struggle with that anymore. You know, I used to just have these problems, and now I don't because Jesus has healed them. They start each and every time by saying, this is where I am. I have this earthly nature in me. I have this nature in me that is bent on, on, on seeing the world and embracing this lifestyle. And until I start by just admitting that every time, by confessing that every time, I can't truly turn and find transformation in God. We need to have that same kind of discipline in all the different parts of our life. All the different parts of my life where we're just saying, this is, this is, I need to start with repentance. And until I have this discipline of repentance, I'm not going to actually change. I'm just going to have these like little moments where it's like, oh, I'm better today and then worse tomorrow. I'm better today and worse tomorrow. In Christian tradition, we are meant to have the spiritual discipline of repentance. Now, I want to say one other thing before we tell you how we're going to do this. I want you to hear that the word re- discipline is really important in everything we're talking about today. And discipline, daily disciplines, are hard to do and they are increasingly hard in the world we live in today. We don't like routine in our world. We like constant new things. We like the constant new agenda. We like the new fad. Well, I was on this diet and exercise plan, but now I hear about this one and I'm jumping over it over here. Right? We're just kind of jumping all over the place. There's information everywhere all the time and we're kind of always comparing. I, I was telling John uh, Wasson this week, I call him Wasson. I'm just gonna let you know. You don't have to call him Wasson, but if I call him Wasson, it's not disrespectful. He's already told me it's okay. Uh, so, but I got it then. John Wasson. Uh, um, John, he, who are you? Uh, we were talking this week, and I was telling about a buddy of mine who just got the new iPhone 6. Now, I know they're Apple people here. What I'm about to say is not an anti-Apple point. It's not an anti-iPhone point. Keep your emails to yourself about that. I'm not going down the road here about negative anti-Apple or iPhone. It's just an example, okay, Clark? It's just an example, This is one of my friends who stood in line. He's one of those people that stood in line for hours for the iPhone 6. 
hours for the iPhone 6 outside of a store. And he was telling me about it, and I'm like, you spent hours in line waiting for the first day of the new iPhone 6. There'd be some there tomorrow, but I gotta be one of the first ones to have it today. And I'm like, well, you know, I mean, I know what it's like when your cell phone breaks and you don't have one, and you're really anxious to get connected again. And so I said, so, you know, did you not have a phone that was working? He's like, no, 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 I had the iPhone 5, and it was working great. I love it. I'm like, really? He goes, yeah, I stood in line for hours for that one. I had the iPhone 4 before that, right? And it's like, so did you need a new cell phone? It's like, no, 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 but I got to have the new thing. Like, I got to have the newest thing that comes along. We love that, right? It's why people don't like baseball anymore. I love baseball, but baseball people even know people don't have the attention span to watch a three-hour game anymore, right? Where it's just the same thing over and over, and there's this 20-second break in between. So baseball's trying to find all this way. We've got to speed stuff up. We've got to have stuff between every inning to keep you entertained and to keep you focused because people just don't like routine. We love constant stimuli. Anytime you want to be a success in something, however, you need to be somebody who is willing to build daily disciplines in the small things. There is no way to achieve success in any aspect of life if you are not willing to lean into routines and habit and discipline in the small things on a daily basis. Take, for example, business. Jim Collins writes a lot about this that the most successful businesses over time are not the ones that are jumping to new fads and the new ways of doing things and the new movements that are happening in the world. The successful, best businesses that sustain are ones that go, this is what we do. This is what we do. And we may modify it a little bit. We may keep up with the times. But this is what we do. And we do it again and again and again. And we get better at it and better at it and better at it. And we build discipline and discipline and discipline. Take a successful marriage or relationship. A successful marriage is not one that things are really hard and then you go off every four months and have this great vacation and you connect and it's wonderful and then you come back to life and it gets really hard again. A successful marriage of one of great intimacy is a marriage that is built on daily disciplines and habits that seek to serve one another in the smallest of things and doing it again and again and again and again. Dean Smith, the college basketball coach of uh, North Carolina, University of North Carolina for a long time, had many great players. Uh, he always says that, said that the greatest player he coached was Michael Jordan. And it's kind of like not a hard debate, right? I mean, it's like any, you know. But he said he was the best basketball player. But he actually said he was not the best athlete that ever played for me. He goes, I had a number of people who played for me who were much better athletes than Michael Jordan. Now, Michael Jordan was a great athlete. But he said what made Michael Jordan better than anyone else was not his athleticism, but it was his daily devotion to habits, to drills, to discipline. He was the first in the gym. He was the last leave. He was almost maniacal about perfecting every single drill that he could and doing it again and again and again and again. It's what made him the greatest basketball player that Dean Smith ever coached. There is no such thing as success in this life without daily habits and disciplines that we give ourselves to, without just jumping to new things all the time. And that is true in our spiritual lives as well. There is no way we can consistently feel intimate with God if we are not building daily spiritual disciplines, the discipline of repentance into our lives, into our daily routines. One of my favorite quotes we're going to bring up here is by a British theologian and author named G.K. Chesterton. This is what he says, talking about the uh, uh, habit and, um, and in, in the spiritual realm. He says, Because children have a bounding vitality, 
Because they are in spirit, fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. (laughs) For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but he has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. We are called to a discipline this week and in our life of repentance. Not a moment, not a service, but a discipline I want to invite you into this week of repentance. And here's how we're going to do that. We're going to do that through a prayer. To prayer that you will pick up as you leave here today. You're to take it with you. And the discipline we're inviting you to is to pray it at least twice every day this week. You might pray it many times, more times, that's fine, but at least twice. The first time we want you to practice this discipline is the first thing you do when you wake up. Before you check your phone, before you check Facebook, before you look at your text messages, before you see your emails, before you see what happened on ESPN, the first thing to do is to pray this prayer. Reflect on it. Just let the words wash over you. Reflect on what it means. And to end your day, the end, the last thing you do at night, to pray this prayer, to let it wash over you, to reflect. And as we discipline ourselves through this prayer this week, we are saying and repenting and we're moving and humbling ourselves. We're saying no to certain things and saying yes to turning towards God and and humbling and submitting ourselves. If we do it, we will walk back in here next week different from how we are today. But it must be a discipline that we steady ourselves to. I'm gonna close this time by reading this prayer and you'll pick it up on the way out. We're also going to have communion is where you leave today so that this table can be the turning point, that you can come to Jesus and move out from here differently, picking this prayer up. But lastly, you'll see on your chair that there's a note card there. And what we want you to do through this next song before we come to the table is just write some areas just at first that strike you where you are saying yes to a story that you're the centerpiece of where that earthly wisdom is dominating your life. And we want you to bring it up here and we're going to get you to put it in this basket and and turn away from it and to turn out and leave here in a different way, okay? So here's what we're going to do. This will be the prayer you'll pick up. I'm going to pray it now and then we're going to go into this time of writing and music and worship for a few minutes before communion. So let's end by praying. Listen now to God's word through Walter Brueggemann, whose prayer we'll use this week. We are among the builders. We do silos and missile silos. We do tall towers and large granaries. We do pyramids and monuments and steeples and high-rises. We build because we are able, because it looks good, because it feels good, because we have so much stuff to store. We need bigger, better barns. We make it tall and shiny and beautiful, only to discover that moth and rust consume, only to discover that shiny surface turns empty shell, only to discover that storage is for goods that melt and sour. We end closer to empty-handed than we imagined. As we are able, we turn from our cities to you. We turn from our successes to you, 
We turn from our reason to you. We turn from our power to you, to you, to you, to you, to you. Our help is in no other, save in you alone. You only, you enough, you and your generosity. Whom have we in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that we desire other than you. Hear our trust and our thanks and our readiness to obey. Amen.